Psalm 32, most scholars believe it was written against the backdrop of probably the most, one of the most famous stories of the Bible. But that's so familiar that sometimes I think we run the danger of not appreciating all the implications. So let me try to retell it for you in a more contemporary format. There once was an incredibly gifted singer-songwriter, and he could write words that captured people's deepest, unexpressed emotions. He put them to a tune they couldn't get out of their minds, and then he was blessed with a voice like few had ever been. His music seemed to transcend categories. People flocked to hear him, to read about him. He was hugely in demand. Women literally threw themselves at his feet, knocked down hotel doors to get to him. He's often called one of the world's most eligible bachelors. In, in the middle of one particularly exhausting tour, they'd been on the road for months, uh, one of his shows was canceled due to conflict and scheduling. And the star, uh, we'll call him David, decided to make a quick trip back home while his entourage went on to set up at the, for the concert to follow. And it so happened that that very day he came home to his palatial mountainside estate, one of his assistants had organized a pool party at David's place for all the wives and children of the touring musicians and company, kind of, kind of a morale builder to help compensate for those long absences from their spouses. David determined not to interrupt the party, went upstairs to the den to watch a tennis match on ESPN. He soon became bored, went to the window, peered out, and then it happened. He couldn't take his eyes off of her. This one woman, newly married to Charlie, a sound man. Now, Charlie had been with him since the days that they would all pile into a battered station wagon, go from gig to gig. Often, Charlie had driven through the night so David and the three musicians could be somewhat rested for the next one-night stand. But that didn't matter to him now. All he could see was her, and he couldn't take his eyes off of her. And later that night, he called the woman. He was flattered. She was flattered that this powerful man, this incredible idol of America, wanted to spend time with her alone. And so they met at a restaurant. It ended in a motel, and the next day, David flew back and did his concert. A couple of weeks later, Starr got an urgent phone call from the woman, smiled to himself when he got the message, but that smile would soon turn into a frown. As she told him, with fear in her voice, she suspected she was pregnant. Test confirmed it. Abortion was out of the question for her, and if, if Charlie could just come home immediately, there could be every, he could have every reason to believe that the child was his. David thought to himself, no problem. So he called Charlie, and he told him he'd really been working hard, and he needed to go spend some time with his wife. And Charlie said, no way. I can't desert the rest of the crew. Those dates at the United Center, that's too big a deal, and you know the sound's terrible there. They need me too much. And Charlie would not go home. David made several more attempts in the next couple of weeks, but the window of opportunity was closing, and Charlie's wife was getting frantic. 
It was becoming a huge weight around the star's shoulders until the next day his road crew supervisor said, hey, I was just driving your vet and had the strangest thing happen. Steering wheel locked up on me for a bit and I slowed down, it freed up again, but I wouldn't drive that until I had that fixed. And Okay, David said, I'll have it towed in tomorrow. And then it dawned on him. He called Charlie told him what was needed, that he needed Charlie to get something. It was an emergency. Don't let the speed limit stop you. And by the way, take my bet. The next day, the papers recorded the story of one of the Star's road crew who had plunged off a mountain cliff in the Star's very own vet. The whole nation breathed a sigh of relief that it wasn't the Star that died in that fiery plunge. Sometime later, even a year or so, one of his assistants puts it all together, gets enough of the little bits and pieces of information and figures it out and in a meeting with everyone there confronts the star to his face on what he's done. And David crumbles and confesses his deed. Now everyone knows, and you know, the story of David and Bathsheba in modern contexts. Now publicly, David now reveals in this psalm how he dealt with the guilt and the shame that washed over him because of that. Several people asked me when I was going to preach what I was going to preach on. I said hope. And the confusing thing is I haven't said a whole lot about hope. Uh, But here's the deal. Hope is as natural to us as breathing. We're born with hope. Nothing much more hopeful than a newborn baby. So dependent and so expectant. So filled with hope. Our problem is we then begin to allow obstructions to come into our lives to smother that hope. It's kind of like, to use an analogy, it's kind of like if you want to be clean and you just put on clean clothes, that, that doesn't cut it. You have to get rid of the dirt. You have to take a, a bath. If you want to have hope that you were created to have, you have to get rid of all that gets between you and the Creator. Now, last week we talked about envy, and envy really is like building idols. It's like making an idol out of something, some person, that is really going to take the place of what only God can do to bring you the kind of satisfaction that you seek in your life. Um, Today, what David is dealing with, the shame and the guilt, is what for so many people smothers their hope. You get rid of the envy in your life and deal with the shame and guilt, and hope will begin to blossom. Now, I want you to look at this quote. Um, I don't believe in guilt. I believe in living on impulse as long as you never intentionally hurt another person and don't judge people in your life. I I think you should live completely free. Angelina Jolie. I'm not trying to pick on her. But if you you Google uh, guilt and shame, this this pops up all over the place, all over the internet. 
And it's very reflective, really, of our culture. Now, the problem with it is I believe guilt and shame are God-given emotions for us. Kind of like the burning sensation when you touch the stove, and it's, that, that's so you pull back from it. Guilt and shame are so we pull back from the things that cause it. Now, these are the things that will hurt us, and they'll hurt each other. Exactly the things that says are the conditions of living without guilt. Now I want to. We'll come back to this, but I want to go. Let's look at what Paul, what what David says in Psalm 32. He says, "Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin is the sin the Lord does not count against him." and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, David, ever the poet, he uses four different ways to describe the root of his shame and guilt. And let me try to explain them. The first one, it, he uses his transgressions, whose transgressions are forgiven. And the meaning of this in the original is really is to rebel, to revolt against authority. In this case, God's authority. Now, David recognizes his relationship to obey God, his creator, and that he has violated that. He's willfully disregarded what he knew was right to get himself out of a mess that he got into because he had, again, previously disregarded something, uh, obeying something, one of God's commands that he knew was right. Uh, in King David's uh, case, the text seems to imply that one of the reasons that he got into that problem was because of idleness. That got him into trouble. Um, that's small, really. A lot of times it's the small things that set us up for the big problems, the big transgressions in our lives. Uh, it's usually not a single rebellion. It's a number of things that come together when we decide a number of times to go against God's instructions. Now, the second word that he uses here, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Um, sins there, that word has a sense of missing the target. In Judges uh, 20, 16, there, tells of a legion that the Israelites had of left-handed soldiers who used slings slingshots, like David used against Goliath, slingshots, and they were so accurate, they could hit a, they could aim at a hair and get it, Scripture says. They could aim at that hair and not miss. When it says, it judges that word miss, it's the same thing, the same word as is used here. So sins often are missing the mark the best that God is falling short. It's not really, it's being careless, but it's not uh, hitting the mark that God has set for us. Uh, King David had many wives, and yet he wasn't content with that. He didn't preserve that marriage bond. Um, parents, I think too many times um, we let our, our, our desire to be really great parents get in the way of our own relationship with a spouse. We get caught up in that, and uh, we don't want to neglect the children, we neglect each other. And the greatest gift that you can give to your children 
is that they know you love each other even more than you love your child. Not only that, the best sex education you can give is that they know that you delight in each other, that you thank God for the wonderful gift of sexuality enough to enjoy it in the only setting where maximum sex is realized, lifelong commitment in marriage. And singles, the mark God sets for you is not to take this wonderful gift of sexuality and make it into some sort of measure of a developing relationship. The very fact that it is such a wonderful thing is why God says wait. It's why God says even in this society where we tend to connect physically before we connect in mind and spirit, we don't realize that it's backwards when we do that. They take this powerful, entangling force that sex is, and we use it as a substitute for the unity of spirit and mind that God wants us to have. So a couple has a conflict, and they, they resolve it together in bed, come together in body, creating a synthetic unity, uh, really, that has no foundation in their relationship otherwise. They have doubts about the relationship. They resolve them the same way and end up married with a mounting disparity between really their unity of spirit and their unity of body. And that becomes confusing and it's, it can be fatal for a marriage relationship. The third word that David uses is translated in a lot of translations the exact same way as the second one, but it's a totally different one in the original. And uh, in some older translations, it's, it's, it's translated as iniquity. That's probably not a word you've heard recently on a news show or around the office. But, so that's why they just use the word sin again. But it means crooked, bent, twisted, uh, perverted. <laughs> we use that word for an extreme. But really, there's a sense in which each of us by the sin that we've had in our own lives, we're perverted, we're, we're, we're out of line, we're, we're, we're crooked. An example of that uh, illustration, Isaiah 30, 13, says, This sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It's a, that's a great picture of what, when we disobey God's guidelines for us, what happens? We become cracked bulging, we become weakened, really, in our own internal integrity. Um, now, I'm not speaking when I say that about, say, the many things people around you might say are wrong. I'm talking about what God says is wrong. That's the important place to get, get the standard. There's a lot of people that will tell you a lot of things, but measure it against that standard. Then there's one other, one other characterization here, and that is whose spirit is no deceit, cover-up, falsehood, that we lie to ourselves. You know, the result of our disobedience is often that, is that we justify it, so we lie to ourselves. We become out of sorts with ourselves, out of unity with ourselves, as well as with each other, and as well as with our God. It is the root of a lot of 
difficulties and internal conflicts, and we pay dearly for that if we don't deal with it. But look at what, look at what David does. Look at verse 3. So he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This psychological problem, it had physical impact. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I don't know. Does this happen to you? Uh, there'll be times just all of a sudden something pops into my mind that I said or did or didn't do, and it's like a flush of shame goes over me. How could I do that? How could I do that? Those are times that God is prompting you to do either you can ignore it, which I don't recommend. You can try to put clean clothes over a stinking body, or you can deal with it, clean it up, and get rid of the stink. And that's what, in verse 5, we see David doing. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, speaking to God, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess. Confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Somebody asked me during the, after the first service about well, what is confession and, and how do you do it? Well, one of the big things that, that David has done here is he says he acknowledged his sin to God. He agreed with it. He didn't explain it away. He told God, yes, that's what I've done. He also admitted it to the people that confronted him. Now, that's often a big thing. Sometimes we're able to kind of explain our own sin away when we don't have to admit it to anybody, especially the person. We should especially admit it to the person that maybe we've, we've uh, sinned against. But even when that hasn't been the case, many times admitting it to someone who is a close confidant, someone who you know will help, loves you and will help you be all that God created you to be. It's critical. So I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You need people in your life often Everybody should cultivate it. People that will point the finger at you. Even in the most uncomfortable times and say, you know, I'm not sure you're, you're really seeing what's happening in your life. I'm not sure this is what you want to have happen. And we'll confront you with something actually you have said or done. You have to cultivate those relationships. Now, I, you may have a number of people you don't that, you don't trust will come and say that kind of thing to you. But you need to cultivate relationships with people that you do trust. That you know when they say something like that to you, that they have your measure. They appreciate all the good things about you. And when they bring up something that's less than admirable, then you listen. Because you can do the same with them. That's your trust relationship. So I want you to see now three, uh, four ways that God will relieve us of shame and guilt. And see that he describes here. The first one is that he forgives. 
our transgressions are forgiven. Now, the, the, the meaning of the original word that, that, that he uses here is that it carries our burdens away. I love this one. Because what it's saying here, it's not just like God says, well, okay, it's all forgiven, it's gone. It, God gets actively involved in bearing those burdens away that's been weighing you down in helping get rid of them. Uh, that word that's used there is uh, used many times in scriptures as uh, for like a, 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 a burden that a mule would bear. Um, and it's probably reflected in verse 9. Don't be a mule about this. See, we try to carry these burdens ourselves, but we can't pay for those. We, Jesus carried them on the cross, took them on the cross for us, and we should allow him to have carried those burdens away. Now, a lot of times in our own contemporary society, we try to explain it away rather than deal with it. But we need to get forgiveness and get our sins, our burdens carried away. Now, by faith, somehow David knew that God would take care of it. He didn't know that it would be his descendant called the son of David who would go to the cross, actually bear all of his burdens, yours and mine, to pay for them on the cross so that you and I could be free and clear of those burdens. All we have to do is embrace that free gift. Now, the second way that God relieves shame and guilt is that he covers them. He hides them from view in a relationship that uh, would be like not bringing them up whose sins are covered, it says. Proverbs 17.9, it says this, using the same word. He who covers over an offense promotes love. That's in a friendship between perhaps you and me. It's he who covers over an offense promotes love, and whoever repeats the matter separates it. Friends, that's true. You probably have people in your life who you know, once you have wronged them, you can ask forgiveness. They will bring it up forever. You remember when you... yeah did this or said that or whatever. But God doesn't do that. Uh, God says he will bury it in the deepest part of the ocean. Now, if your heart accuses you, if your heart tends to keep bringing something up, you just need to ask yourself, okay, has there something about this I haven't really been honest to God about and really worked through? And if not, that's the adversary. It's not God bringing up something that you've already done business with God about. He will cover it up and not bring it up. The third, third way that he wants to take care of your shame and guilt is that he doesn't count it against you. It's no longer a penalty that's, that's hanging over your head. It's like a scorecard, a credit uh, 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 debt that has been erased and no longer is there. He wipes it from your record. Um, the fourth way is one that perhaps is implied here, and I think very important one, that is there's no deceit. We're honest, able to be honest with God, but with ourselves and with those around us. It's a huge relief because that's when God begins to heal 
the bulging cracks that have taken place in your psyche and who you are and, and helps you become more and more what God created you to be. Now, there's a couple of things Angelina said that I would uh, agree with. The first one is this. He said, she said, I don't believe in guilt. Now, if by that you mean not wallowing in guilt and letting the past haunt you, I totally agree with that because that's God's plan for you. He does not want the past to haunt you. He wants you to deal with it, take care of it. He's made that possible, taken care of all of the payment for that. So, he doesn't want you to be wallowing in guilt. It should be something you deal with and take care of. The second thing that she said that I agree with is I think you should live completely free. I agree with that. God wants you to be free, not a prisoner of your past, but you've got to do it God's way. You've got to go back to the Creator and take care of these things. Uh, beginning, when we were doing worship in the first service, um, we're singing, I'm standing and singing. I look down and it's my uh, three-year-old grandson, Rockwell. Now, he's just, he's looking up with this smile. Like, he knows his grandfather is going to get down, going to hug him, kiss him, and say, I love you. Now, it doesn't matter if the last time I saw Rockwell, he was throwing a fit, maybe he was worn out and only wanted his mother and didn't want to have anything to do with me. It doesn't matter. Because at this point, he's my grandson, and I'm going to melt. My heart's just going to melt for him. That's God for you. That is God for you ten times that. There's nothing you have done, nothing, nothing you could do that would change his desire, just take you in his arms, welcome you, forgive you, and heal you. So take him at his word. Would you bow with me, please? I want to thank you, Jesus, as the son of David, for making payment for King David's sins, for our sins, giving us the ability to be completely Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.